0: Hi, I'm Randy Peterson, and uh, uh, it's good to uh, to be with you today. Uh, and I pr- about a month ago, I preached and I went I went way over time, and some of you may remember that. And and seriously, the clock was messed up. I have a timer back there, and it was messed up. And so I thought I had plenty of time, and I didn't. Uh, so so I. So, uh, Really, that's not just an excuse, but I will, I will be looking at the actual clock and the timer and my watch. We'll, we'll make sure you get out of here before noon. <laughs> and maybe long before that, hopefully. Have you seen the new uh, Mission Impossible movie yet? Uh, I went out and saw that yesterday, and man, oh man, chase scenes like you wouldn't believe, and it's called Mission Impossible Fallout, because Tom Cruise is always falling out of everything. He falls out of a plane, he falls out of a helicopter, he falls out of the car, he's falling out. And um, it's a spy movie, but somewhere along the line, spy stories turned into these these action-packed thrillers with explosions and chases. And I remember the original Mission Impossible. How many of you remember that, back the TV series way back when? Not even the first movies. The TVs, you see, we're showing our age here. There you go. We got, got a few. Um, and that was, I love that. It was a smart show because it was really about spying. It was about about pretending and sneaking in and, and getting information and uh, uh, managing a situation by just being smart about it. And they had technology that was before computers but they kind of invented computers on the show and they were and they had actors who were acting the parts of different people. It was a great spy. I love a spy story. And that's what we have today. We're in the last episode of our Great Summer Reads and we've been talking about different stories from the Bible uh, encouraging you to read them for yourself, but hitting the high points as we meet here. And so today we have the story of the spies from Israel who go into Jericho. So, let me set up the uh, the scene for you. The Israelites have, uh, have left Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt for centuries, and the whole... Uh, Passover thing, the Red Sea thing i 'm not going into all those stories for you, hoping that you have you know, some knowledge of that, but the Red Sea parts and they go into the Sinai desert, go to Mount Sinai, they receive the commands of God, and then they head toward Canaan, the promised land, the land that we now know of as Israel, but at the time there were other tribes, other nations living there, and the Israelites were going to to conquer this land that God had promised to them. And so they they camped at that point, at a point just south of the promised land, and decided to send in spies to that land. There were 12 spies that they sent in, and these 12 spies explored a little bit, came back, And they all said, wow, it's a great place. We should live here. It's wonderful. Oh, except 10 of them said, the people there are too strong. They have big walled cities. They have big armored soldiers. We are not going to be able to take this land. So let's not do it. Two of them said, what are you talking about? God is stronger than anybody. God can defeat these people. If God wants us to go into this land, if he has promised us this land, we can do it. One of those two spies who said that was Joshua. Remember that name. Um, So at that point, the people accepted the majority report there. And they decided not to go into the promised land. God was pretty ticked about that. And so he said, you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years. In fact, all the people of this nation are going to die off in that time. And a new generation will rise up and become essentially the new Israel, and I will give this land to them. And so that's what happened. In over 40 years, they wandered in the desert. They eventually made their way up along the east side of the Dead Sea, east of the land of Canaan, and, and perched there. At the end of that 40-year period, Moses died, and the new leader was Joshua. Joshua and he was about to lead the people across the Jordan River and into the land of Canaan. The first stop along the way, the first big city there, was Jericho. Kind of a gateway city to the rest of Canaan. From there you could take roads to all the other major cities in the land. So they needed to conquer Jericho. One problem, Jericho had a big wall around it. It was a hard city to conquer. And so Joshua sent spies in. This time he sent two spies. I, in fact, I wonder if in, in Joshua's mind, there's the, you know, remember it was the two spies who brought back the good, good report, and I was one of them. So I'm going to send, send two guys in, and they're going to see what it's like in there. And they explore the land, and they go to Jericho. And that's where they meet a woman named Rahab. Now Rahab is described to us as a prostitute. And uh, she lived... It actually says in the wall, and uh, and this is actually quite possible because many of the the wall the walled cities in ancient time outer wall may be separated by about ten feet. And sometimes that gap was divided off into rooms. It was called a casemate wall, and the word casemate actually refers to rooms. It was a roomed wall. And so those little rooms could be set apart as maybe a storeroom for weapons or uh, a, a little place for the guards to rest or something, or in this case, maybe a house of ill repute where travelers could come by and stop and they wouldn't have to go deep into the city, they could kind of retain their anonymity and, uh, and stop there for the night on their travels. Kind of a, a turnpike side motel there where they could stop in. And this was where Rahab lived. Um, as I was reading some of the commentators on this, it was interesting. They were very delicate with story. And so it's a little troubling if Rahab is is a prostitute here. They looked at the Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word can sometimes mean innkeeper, hostess. And so maybe she wasn't that, it wasn't really a bad girl, she was just an innkeeper, a barmaid, maybe, or something like that. And that almost works, except that in the Hebrew of this story, and I'm not going to point it out exactly to you, um, in the Hebrew language, there are a lot of dirty jokes in this story. There are a lot of double meanings that, that are kind of sexual in nature. And so, uh, it's, um, um, so, here's an English example that's kind of tame. That, so the spies were undercover, uh, you know. So that kind of thing throughout this whole story is is kind of suggesting, yeah, that this is really a house of ill repute. Here, let's not be too too nice about it. Um, so then something happens that makes me think that these spies were not very good spies. Now, so far, this is not a bad place to go, because travelers are here, people who might know about the rest of Canaan, and maybe in this place of anonymity, they will be sharing information. You you might get some good information here at this place, except everybody knew the spies were there. The king sends some soldiers over to, to Rahab and says, send those spies out there. We know there are spies in your house, so send them out to us. We want to arrest them. Um, So they weren't that sneaky, Um, but Rahab was. And so Rahab said, uh, no, sorry, they just left. Uh, Just before the city gate was closing for the night, and apparently they had kind of a curfew and a closing, and so new travelers couldn't come in late at night. Uh, But just before the gates closed, they ran out. And, And if you hurry, you could go catch them and she was lying when she said this, because she actually had hid the spies on the roof where the flax was drying. Now, a couple of notes about that. Uh, Apparently, this home in the wall was at the top of the wall, and um, we know it had a window where she looked out, that'll become important later, and it was probably adjoining a roof area at the top of the wall, and flax was an important crop there. It was used uh, large it was for rope and also fabric. It was used to make linen uh, so they would spin it into into linen thread and and weave that into garments um, but the the plant itself has tall stalks and so they would harvest it and then kind of make sheaves of this, bind it together, and even either throw it down on its side or even stand it up and it was taller than, than me, these, these sheaves. And so a person could easily hide among the sheaves of flax that were there drying on the roof. And that's exactly what they did. These spies went up and, and lay down among the sheaves. And so the soldiers could not find them if they searched Rahab's house. Um, I'm going to pause in the story right now. So we have the, the soldiers hiding, we have the, or the, we have the spies hiding, the soldiers have, have gone out to search the countryside for the spies. And um, meanwhile, we're back here looking at this story and, and the commentators have a problem, have two problems with it. So one, Rahab's a prostitute, hero of the story but a bad girl. How do you reconcile that? And the other is, she saved the spies. She did this wonderful thing by lying. Lying is bad. You shouldn't lie. And so uh, several of the commentators I read made that point very explicit. Do not lie. That's a bad thing to do. Do not follow Rahab's example. And this makes me think that maybe we're reading the Bible the wrong way. So let me just suggest this for you. And I know this this might you know, rub some of you the wrong way here. So, so let's think about this. I think often we read the Bible for moral lessons. We read the Bible to learn what good behavior is and what bad behavior is. And so we want to choose the good behavior and not the bad behavior. We teach our children this way, right? Here's a Bible story, do what the good person did, don't do what the bad person did. And so we're treating the story of Rahab as a children's story when it's really a very grown up story and it has some complications what happens when we look at the bible this way is that we divide all of the bible characters into good people and bad people and we wind up ignoring the bad things that the good people do and the good things that the bad people do and so we we when when you really look at the bible you see heroes of the faith like noah well Righteous man, yeah, but after the flood, he gets drunk and embarrasses his family. Abraham, what a great paragon of faith. God says, move, and he moves. He obeys the Lord, and yet he puts his wife in great danger when they visit Egypt on one occasion. You think about Jacob, the patriarch of the 12 tribes of Israel, but he was a liar himself. He was a cheater. He was a deceiver. You think about David, the greatest king of Israel who had a soldier in his army killed and stole his wife. The great heroes of our faith, those good people, were also bad people. And then we have people like Rahab who show up. And she is is making a living doing bad things. She lies to save these spies. Reality is not just good and bad. And the problem is when we judge Bible characters that way, we often get to judge the people nowadays like that. And we go, they're bad. Oh, these are good people. These are bad people. And we separate the people in our lives into good people and bad people. And we come to church to show how good we are. That's what good people do, right? Good people go to church, and so we're here. We're here with the good people. That's not fully the Bible's story. Yes, the Bible does give us moral instruction. Yes, that's in there, but it's not the complete story of what the Bible is and what God wants to tell us through the Bible. The Bible is less about telling us what to do and more about telling us who we are. In fact, more about telling us who we can be as we come in contact with the God who continues to amaze us. So, back to the story. Oh, we have plenty of time. We're, we're <laughs> going to do fine here. <laughs> Why did Rahab do this? Well... She tells us, and here's the story right here. Before the spies lay down for the night, among all the flax probably, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Next. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. We didn't talk about that story, but that was part of the Israelites' march up the east side of the Dead Sea there. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God, in heaven above and on earth below." This is an amazing profession of faith. And we're going to pause here on the on the slide. This is an amazing statement coming from a woman who grew up in a pagan culture. The Canaanites had all sorts of gods. She had all sorts of people that she heard people beings that she had learned to worship. There was, it was deeply ingrained in the culture in which she lived. But somehow, as she hears the news about the Israelites and how God is leading them through this wilderness, she says, Your God is God. Not all the gods that I have to choose from. There is something opening up in her heart. She is somehow finding some dissatisfaction with the gods that she has learned about all her life. And she opens up to the God of these Israelites. Your God is God. You know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the story of Ruth, uh, which, which also happens a little bit later in history than this story. But didn't Ruth say much the same thing to her mother-in-law, Naomi? Your God will be my God. Ruth was also a foreigner, a Moabite from east of the Jordan. The Moabites had all sorts of gods of their own that they worshipped. But that wasn't enough for Ruth. She meets Naomi, and she recognizes that there is a real God who is affecting Naomi's life. And she says, your God will be my God. This makes me wonder where this comes from, this moment of faith. How does faith begin to grow in the heart of Rahab or in the heart of Ruth? And it has to be God's work, right? It has to be the Holy Spirit nudging, calling, inviting. That still happens today. And every day you live among, work among go to school among people who are going through their issues with the gods that they have been taught to worship. Gods like money, gods like success, gods like fame, gods like football. They have been taught to worship those gods, but there is something unsatisfying about them. And some of them, not all of them, but some of them are beginning to realize that. And their hearts are beginning to be pried open by the Holy Spirit. And they meet you. And they recognize the Holy Spirit in you. And they say, maybe your God can be my God. I think about the New Testament where Peter says to Christians who are living and working in the world he says be ready to give an answer when anyone asks you to explain the hope that you have this is what he's saying he's saying that there are people whose hearts are being pried open be ready when you talk with them recognize those questions that are forming in their hearts and be ready to welcome them into the worship of the true God let's get back to our story so Rahab has explained this faith that, that is brewing in her. She explains it to these Israelites. And um, she says, Now then, please swear to me by the, Lord that you, by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, that you will save us. From death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, then we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she is asking to be saved. Her world is falling apart. She knows the Israelites are going to come in and conquer this city. And she is saying, I'm one of you now. Save me. Protect me. When you, is there some way that you can protect me in all of this? And the two spies say, yes, yes, we'll, we'll do it. And they go on to tell her how they're going to do that. They say, put, take, get a scarlet cord and put it out your window. And then when we come and invade the city... We'll see that scarlet cord, and I'll make sure that everybody in our army knows to to spare the people who are in that room with the scarlet cord in the window. And she she does that, and right then she, she gets a scarlet cord and puts it out the window. Get this picture for a moment. This is her lifeline, this cord hanging out the window. This is what is going forward. I've told you before uh, that I keep seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. And sometimes it's a stretch. Sometimes the scholars would laugh at me. And this is one of those cases where, okay, it's why a scarlet cord? Well, the scarlet would stand out against the sort of sandy limestone color of the walls. And so it would be highly visible. Scarlet might have been a color that the prostitutes in that place wore. And so she would have it handy and put it out the window. But scarlet is also the color of blood. And we flash forward in the plan of God for salvation, not just for one city, not just for one woman and her family, but for the human race. And how is that achieved? What is the lifeline? for the people of this planet it's the blood of Christ and he's dying on that cross and his side is pierced and blood runs out a scarlet cord that saves the people of the world this is our lifeline this is what we cling to it's not the good deeds that we do it's not that moment of doing something good and courageous to thwart the king of Jericho what we are saved by is the mercy and grace of God shown to us in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what we cling to. And that was Rahab's hope in this moment. And as the story goes on, it's really fascinating what happens, and, and some of you may, may know the story of, of the fall of the wall of Jericho. The Israelites amassed... Um, They crossed the Jordan much as they had crossed the Red Sea earlier and there they were on the west side of the Jordan in front of the city of Jericho and they began marching around. And the first day they marched around the city. And for an individual it might have taken a half hour to march around a city of that size. It wasn't a huge city. But for a whole nation it might have taken several hours but they march around the city once. And I've got to think Rahab is in there going to the window, looking out at them. Here's the cord. Here's the cord. When you attack, remember, see this cord. She's gathered her father and mother and brother and sisters in the room. We're going to be saved because of this cord. They march around the city and nothing happens. Well, next day, they march around the city again. Okay, now they're going to do it. They were just checking us out the first time, but now they're going to do it. Here's the cord. Don't forget the cord. Nothing happens. Again, the third day, the same thing. The fourth, the fifth, the sixth day, they march around the city and nothing happens. And the seventh day, they march around the city once, twice, three times. Seven times they march around the city and then the trumpet sound and the people shout and the walls of Jericho fall down flat. And the Israelites storm into the city. Now, structurally, I don't know how Rahab's room remained intact, but it must have because she and her family were spared. The soldiers came in and everybody knew, everybody in Israelite, Israel's army knew that the people in Rahab's house are protected because of that scarlet cord that she has worshipped the Lord our God, and we will protect her. And so she and her family were protected in this time. Now, the... um the scholars say that uh, Jericho was built along a fault line, and it was, and that, this, that perhaps even the, the pounding of the Israelites' feet caused some seismic activity that made an earthquake knock down the walls, and maybe that happened. Um, maybe all the people rushed to the edge of the wall, and over seven times the curiosity was so huge that everybody in the city was on the wall, and the walls gave way. I don't know. But somehow, God conquered this unconquerable city and saved one family because of their faith, because of a scarlet cord in the window. The New Testament talks about Rahab and her faith. In the book of Hebrews, we have, in fact, I think we have a a slide of Hebrews. Uh, um, The 11th chapter of Hebrews Hebrews talks about various heroes of the faith, people in the Old Testament who showed great faith. And it just goes through, it's a hall of fame of, of heroes. And among them, in fact, the very last one, is Rahab. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. So among all of the Abraham and Isaac and David and these people celebrated for their great faith is this prostitute Rahab. And notice the language is not made nicer. <laughs> she is still identified as a prostitute, but her faith, her faith, Saved her and her family. Um, the book of James is is really interesting in, in this way. And um, uh, so there are a lot of people who think that James has a very different message from the Apostle Paul. In, and I'm not going to get deeply into this, but basically they say Paul is saying we are saved by faith alone. And James is saying we're we're saved by the works that we do. You still have to be good. That's that's what saves you. And um, I think these are surface differences, and I think the root message of both of these apostles is basically the same. And I think James was somewhat subversive. I think James was writing to a lot of legalists who wanted him to say, That we are saved by our works. That just believing in something is not enough. And James says something that Paul would also say. That faith, that real faith, drives us to action. It's not just a feeling in your gut. It's something that changes the way you live. When you truly believe in something, it makes a difference in your life. Paul knows that, and he writes about that. James knows that, and he writes about it, and we see it in the lives of many of these heroes of the faith, including Rahab. And so, James is here talking, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. Now, the legalists that James is writing to, they love this. They love Abraham. Abraham's the father of the faith. The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And all those legalists are saying, yeah, James, preach it. Preach it. Abraham is a good guy. He's one of the good people. you got to be a good person to get into God's kingdom. None of those bad people, just the good people, right? Like Abraham. He believed, but he also acted. And so that's what it's all about. you got to live a good life. And then James says, well, yeah, but here's Rahab, the prostitute. Was not she considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. It's not about being a good person. It's about having a genuine faith that God is God. That God is in control. That God is the most important thing and therefore my life needs to show that. And therefore in that moment of decision when the king's soldiers are saying, turn over the spies to us, you say, no, I'm going to stand with God and I'm going to do this because I believe. It's all the same story, and let's not parse it out too much. Faith drives us to action. You're not saved by your works. Your faith opens up to a God who wants to do great things inside of you. And it all goes together. There is, um, there is a postlude to the story of, of Rahab, and it was hinted at in our, in our kind of cartoony thing before the service but I, I want to get back to this um, it reminds me of films where at the end they say oh this character you know grew up and married somebody and, and you know, what are they doing now um, we have that kind of with Rahab she was there, there's one note in this story in Joshua where, where it says she, she lives among us until this day so she became part of the Israelite community as the Israelites invaded the land of Canaan and settled the land of Canaan, Rahab became a part of that community. But we know more than that from the New Testament, because apparently she married a guy, an Israelite named Salmon, maybe Salmon, maybe he was a, <laughs> maybe he was a fisherman. Um, she, she married a guy and had a kid. The kid was named Boaz. If you were here a couple of weeks ago for the story of Ruth, the guy that Ruth eventually marries, Boaz. And so we have this amazing construction in the beginning of the New Testament, the very beginning of the New Testament. So you may be like a lot of people who say, I want to read all the Bible all the way through. Start at the beginning and go to the end. And maybe someone convinces you that's not a good idea to start with the Old Testament like that. Because you'll get through Genesis and Exodus just fine. Somewhere in Leviticus, you'll, you'll slam on the brakes because it's about <laughs> like skin diseases. And, um, but then you say, okay, I'll start in the New Testament. Let's start reading in the New Testament. Matthew 1. This is the story of Jesus. Great. Let's get going on the story of Jesus. And what we get is this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. You're suddenly on Ancestry.com. You see 42 names of people who were Jesus' ancestors. But when you start looking through it, you find stuff like this. So if this is, we're picking it up in verse 5 here. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. That Moabite woman, that woman from the other side of the river, who said to Naomi, your God will be my God. Who knew that she would become an ancestor of Jesus? But she was, because Obed became the father of Jesse, and Jesse became the father of King David. And then it goes on and this is another interesting wrinkle here because it doesn't shy over. It's not saying David was perfect. In fact, it's saying exactly the opposite. It is saying the exact thing that David would be embarrassed about and with good reason. David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Uriah was the soldier that David had killed so that he could steal this woman who later became the mother of Solomon. What's going on here? Is it trying to embarrass Jesus? No. It's telling us a story. It's telling us a story of how God works with the human race. He doesn't gloss over the difficulties, and it's not that he divides everybody into good and bad, and he only works with the good people, because we see it in Jesus' genealogy. All of these people who were foreigners, who were on the other side of the river, who sinned. I didn't even get into this, an earlier story about Tamar, who bore a son to Judah. That's a kind of ugly story in itself in Genesis 38, if you want to read that for yourself. Um, God uses faulty people, broken people, people who do bad things for a living, people who lie because they don't know what else to do. God uses people like that to do what He will do to save the world. And this is the story that the New Testament gives us. I have, I have three quick lessons for us. I've got about 80 seconds to give you this. actually the i 'm looking at the real clock i don 't trust the timer anymore, so here we go maybe maybe you're here and I know many of you, and so I'm, I'm, I, but some of you i don't and 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 maybe i don't know some of you as well as I should, but maybe there are things inside you that you're not proud of. And maybe there's, a, there's kind of a stumbling block for you that you want to serve God, you want to say yes to God, you want to be part of this Christian thing, but you're not sure if, if God wants you. If you're good enough for God, there are things that you're ashamed of in your life. How could God possibly use you after the things that you've done? Well, he used Rahab in a big way. He can use you. Second thing. In your life, keep an eye out for people exactly like that. People who are saying, I want to open up to God, but I'm afraid. I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed. God would not want somebody like me. Listen to those cues and be ready to offer the welcome of God to them. And the third thing is a statement about this church and inviting us to be this church, 18 years no, 28 years ago, 20, 28 years ago. We started Hope Church, not because this area needed another church. We, there were plenty of churches in this area. We started it because people needed a lifeline. They needed something to hang on to. And there were lots of churches that were kind of, we don't want to knock the other churches, but they're social clubs, or they're irrelevant to the people who were calling out for some hope. And we called the church Hope. And we said week after week after week, here's your lifeline. Come on in. Meet God. We don't care where you've been, what you've done. God wants to meet you. That's been our message from the start. And it still is. And here in Mount Laurel, this is not a place where good people come to show how good they are. I'm sorry. I'm sure you're very good. But but it's not about that. It's about coming and worshiping together a God who wants to meet us each week in all of our good and bad stuff. And he wants to meet our neighbors, too, in all of their good and bad stuff. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the story of Rahab. Thank you for that that example that we have in her. And your mercy and your grace that comes to us in the blood of Jesus. We want to hang on to that lifeline. Keep our eyes open to those people who are opening their hearts. Those people who are listening to your voice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great weekend, everyone.